Good morning. Good morning. I want to thank Reverend Dr. Craig for giving me the ability to be here in this pulpit today and want to thank uh, my friend, Reverend Mike Moss, for his wonderful and generous introduction. And I want to thank you, the people of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Frederick, for your hospitality and for your welcoming of me this morning. It is good to be in your company. It's not a long ride from Washington, D.C., just up the road, and, uh, and it was a beautiful drive this morning, and it was also beautiful to come into this part of the country and see the colors uh, upon the land. And so uh, I thank you for the privilege of getting me away from my church to travel up here today. I want to lift up a, a, a scripture. And in my church tradition, scriptures, and particularly old scripture, like out of Genesis, are never to be taken in its literalism because we've lost the art of telling stories in the West. And these are constructed as stories to help us go deeper and probe our own understanding of ourselves in relationship to one another and relationship into that which is above humanity. So I lift up very briefly, and I hope I have time enough to come back and work it a little bit late. I didn't have a time to work it at the earliest morning service this morning, but I want to lift up the Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. I lift that scripture up to our hearing. It's also the basis that scripture and the other scriptures in Genesis for that traditional Christian theology of original sin. That somehow folks have been born and born into a hereditary nature of having sin because of this act that took place in the Garden of Eden. And so today I want to talk a little about white supremacy, America's original sin. And so as I stand here today, and as the midterm elections loom, I need to say, vote. Even if you have to vote for the lesser of two evils, vote. Vote to change Congress. And vote to change the U.S. Senate. But vote. We need to have checks and balances on this government, so vote. As Richard Daly would say, vote early and vote often. (laughs) Vote so that immigrant families can be reunited and don't have to live in fear any longer. Vote. Vote so that tyrants, whether in the White House or the Kremlin or in Saudi Arabia or in Israel, can be challenged and won't have support and cover to the reign of terror on their victims. Vote so that more women are elected to office. Vote so that more people of color are elected to office. Vote so that we may return the country to some semblance of real morality and some just values again. And at, that, and at this skewed historical moment, 
that we might be able to correct it and somehow redeem it from this mess. So vote. Vote. 2017-2018 feels at times like the prelude to the Civil War where ideologies clash. A time when Southern politicians and legislators and plantation owners and work camp owners and slave speculators were at odds with northern and industrial entities. They felt that the government and northern elites did not understand the importance of forced labor as an economic engine in this country. It was an engine of forced labor that made white men rich and made the country rich, and they felt that their southern way of life was being threatened. There were struggles all over, blue states and red states, I mean slave states and free states. <laughs> there were the white supremacists that infused into the veins of the country, privilege and the disregard for everything that was the other. I want to take a few moments and give you a history lesson this morning because I think that we don't really understand the history of the United States of America. We think we do, but we don't, particularly in terms of its ugly racial side of that narrative. From the beginnings of this country, slavery was a mainstay that catapulted the emerging economy into being the capitalist empire that it is today. The nation and its wealth was a result of stolen labor and robbed lives that existed as property for other human beings to use at their whim and at their discretion. Ever since 20 and odd enslaved Africans sailed into the British colony of Jamestown, Virginia. In 1619, the stain of slavery made filthy the history of the nation, and the scourge of white supremacy was infused into the DNA of the nation. Slavery would officially end with the 13th Amendment in 1865, a period of 246 years. The reprehensible paradigm of slavery morphs and changes several times, with the growth of a young country. However, it is in the 1500s that slave trading is brought to the so-called New World and into the Americas. There was the auction block on the island of Hispanola, where the Portuguese and the Spanish originally brought their captives into the so-called world. The enslaved were forced into places where lands were awarded rich and well-connected white men. This is throughout the Americas and the Caribbean. Enslavement becomes a vital part of how cheap and how many goods can be brought to market. There's sugarcane and coffee and tobacco and cotton. In the U.S., cotton becomes king, and fortunes are made in the enslavement of millions and the labor extracted from those millions. Edward E. Baptist, in his book, The Half Has Never Been Told, if you haven't read it, it's a good book, it comments in this way, he says, by the birth of the nation, by 1775, slave ships had carried 160,000 Africans to the Chesapeake colonies, 140,000 to new slave colonies that opened up in the Carolinas and Georgia, and 30,000 to the northern colonies. These numbers were small compared to the Myrits being carried to sugar colonies. However, slave ships landed more than 1.5 million African captives on British Caribbean islands, primarily Jamaica and Barbados, by the end of the 1700s, and it brought more than 2 million to Brazil. 
In North America, however, the numbers of the enslaved grew, except in the most malarial lowlands of Carolina rice country. By 1775, 500,000 of the 13 colonies, 2.5 million inhabitants were slaves. But something changed with the Louisiana Purchase. Those who were enslaved in the original 13 colonies were known and sold by their skills, such as blacksmith and carpenter and housekeeper, mammy. With the purchase of the Louisiana Territories, however, things began to shift and change, and no longer were people really even sold by their skills or by their trade. They were reduced to simply hands, hands to pick cotton, hands to bring cotton out of the field, hands that would reap great profits for those who owned them, hands that quotas were put on them and they were required to bring in a certain amount of cotton per day. People who were subjected to the right hand of power, the whipping machine as it was called, for those who failed to bring in their quota were whipped, some of them raped, Many killed because they could not meet the quota. And the danger of meeting the quota of cotton was the quota went up every time you met that quota. And and folks just pushed and pushed because it was cheaper to kill a slave and buy a new one than than, than to allow somebody to be idle with idle hands. So with Louisiana, this began to happen. With the Louisiana Purchase resulting in over 25% of then U.S. land mass, more lands were opened up. Financial speculation and trading slaves increased, and therefore more human beings were forced into degradation of enslavement. Farms and plantations back east that fell onto economic hard times sold their enslaved souls to slave speculators cheaply, and the speculators would march them across country in the new territories to sell at premium prices. There were state and regional banks created, where loans were backed by the state legislatures in order to speculate on the enslaved, the land, and the cotton crops. In other words, what what really took place, all of us experienced the mortgage meltdown that that we just came out of not too long ago, where basically paper and mortgages were written to people that really could not afford those mortgages because it was all about the bottom line. And then they bundle it, it's called securitizing the mortgages, and you sell them to the credit market, you sell them to Wall Street, you sell them to the UK, you sell them wherever there is in the country. And of course, what happened with the mortgages, when the, when, when the housing market went bust, basically people came looking for their money, and that was the massive foreclosure. Well, they did that with the enslaved in Louisiana Territory that the banks stepped in and wrote loans based upon a formula that they had in their mind about how much cotton a hand could pick, and therefore offered credit to those speculators to to speculate in that market. And of course, when the price of cotton went down, the creditors came looking for their assets, and therefore they sold off families, and they broke up families, took away children from their mothers, and took away fathers and uh, from their children, and took away husbands from their wives, and sold them wherever they were sold. This is a part of what took place. And all over the world, people were buying that paper. People were investing in that paper. People were investing in those so-called mortgages. Everyone, what I'm trying to get at, had a hand in the sin of slavery whether it was northern textile mills in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, or whether it was the mills in the U.K., 
Everybody had a hand. Whether it was the ship owners who were transporting slaves in and being financed by those on Wall Street and in other places, everybody had a hand in the sin of slavery. Therefore, nobody's hands are clean. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 was passed, removing native peoples from their land, first nation people from their lands in order to make way for new slave territories and to create new plantations and work camps that required additional slaves. In 1836 in Texas, a battle broke out between Texicans and Mexicans, and people like heroic figures like Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett died, and the shout went out, remember the Alamo. But what do you remember about the Alamo? The Alamo was a battle that resulted because the Texicans were trying to expand slave territory into Mexico, and Santa Ana's government had prohibited slavery in the Mexican territories. And that was a fight to try to extend slavery. Then there are all of the presidents who owned slaves. And all of those, like probably that one right now, who wish he could own some slaves. But the 13th Amendment gets in his way. The 13th Amendment outlaws slavery except when laws are violated. And because of that exception, the prisons and jails are filled with black people. According to a Pew Research Project, blacks represent 12% of the U.S. adult population, but 33% of the sentenced prison population. In fact, when it was passed, folks were locked up for law because you could enslave them again. People were locked up because they owed some money because of the sharecropping arrangement that they were involved in, that somehow they ended up owing money to the person who owned the land, and they went to jail because they could be enslaved again. So it was a loophole that brought people back to enslavement. I lift up these snippets, showing the racial pain that exists in the nation. And to say that the United States have never effectively dealt with its sin of racism. How do you deal with your sin of racism when you can't talk about it? How do you deal with the sin of racism when you don't even truly know about it? It wasn't just people being held captive. It was people stripped of their dignity and stripped of their hopes and stripped of their families and separated forever. And sometimes people who had to start three and four families because of where they ended up. Just think about the pain that is inflicted psychologically into people not only in that generation, but generations yet to come. President Barack Obama's election showed us just how little we have come as a society. As Obama was elected, the country immediately went wild with fears of blackness. So they scrambled to buy more guns and to protect themselves from what some thought would be the swarming, swarming hordes of, of blacks marauding all over the country. The pre-Civil War analogy is more like the dismantling of Reconstruction. Reconstruction after the Civil War saw one man, one vote, become a reality enforced by our federal troops. For many of the pre-Civil War South, it felt like the white way of life was being abolished, and so various terror groups rode like the invisible knights of the Ku Klux Klan that was started by former Confederate generals in Pulaski, Tennessee who raised a million dollars back then to fund the operation. So they rode and they terrorized and they hung and they burned and they raped. And Republicans were losing their enthusiasm for protecting the black vote. And despite the presence of federal troops, white Democrats effectively carried out 
campaigns of violence and intimidation to suppress the vote, and the formal end to Reconstruction was brought about in the disputed 1876 presidential election. The Democratic candidate Tilden won the popular vote, but neither candidate initially had a majority of electoral votes due to disputes over returns in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, the only states in which federal troops were still stationed in 1876. Democrats in a backroom deal ceded the disputed election returns to Hayes in return for his agreement to withdraw the last remaining troops from the South, thereby putting a formal end to Reconstruction. Little by little then, and with rapidity, separation laws were put in place, and laws restricting the vote through all kinds of schemes like the literacy tests and poll tax were put in effect. A coup d'etat was carried out in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. Did you know that? In, in 1898, a fusion government elects those who were abolitionists and those who were black to the local city government. And before the night was over, all of the town council had been assassinated, and in the morning, a new body was put in place that were basically segregationists. Nothing happened on the federal government's part to turn that around. They just ignored it, and they allowed it to be. Or, or the Red Summer of 1919, termed by civil rights activist and author James Weldon Johnson. And if you don't know it, that refers to the race riots that ensued across the country. And in that summer and into the fall, blacks came back from, from World War I and decided to question, because they had seen a little bit of the world, decided to question the status of Jim Crow and the reason why you cannot vote if you can fight for a country. And they came back questioning and, and riots began to break out, trying to put the Negro back in his place, trying to put him back in his place. Thousands were killed. Towns were wiped out. Villages were destroyed. But have you read that in your history books? Have you read that anywhere in your history books? The summer of 1919, known as the Red Summer. Now I fast forward to Obama being a figure of reconstruction. And because of race and white supremacy, it was made easy for the person currently in the White House to champion false birth claims, to, champion, to campaign by declaring that a black person diminished the country and was able to sell to a segment of the population that America needed to be made great again. As LBJ said to a young Bill Moyer, in 1960, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. So here we are, exposed to the United States' original sin, the continuing and harmful sin of white supremacy. So what do we do about it? How do we change things and take things into another direction? I got to tell you, I've been fighting all my life. Fighting because that's all I can do is fight. Fighting because I'm never comfortable in America. Fighting because I'm always having to deal with somebody that's trying to take my rights and trying to fought my freedom of movement and my, and, and my, my ability to exist. 
I remember I went to Boston when I left Chicago. I left Chicago because the FBI was hounding me in Chicago. And I went to Boston in the middle of all of the racial strife that was going on in Boston. And I was there before the year was up. I was on trial for attempted murder of a police officer and a number of other charges. And, 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 and what hit me was when I finally got out of jail and got home, there was the district attorney, I still remember his name, Newman Flanagan, holding a press conference, a live press conference, and said, we have an outside agitator who claims to be a minister, and we're going for 40 years in maximum security prison on him. That was me they were talking about. The outside agitator who had come in to decide to stir up the apple cart, to organize people to resist the kind of racism that was taking place in Boston at the time. That's the kind of thing that I think that we all have to do. We have to fight back and we have to organize because we got the power to organize. But what's different is that some of us, we, we talk about it, but we don't do anything about it. We like to have coffee, cake, and talk about what's wrong with the world and how you deal with the orange man in the White House, but then we don't stand up and do anything about it. And they try to beat you back into submission when they talk about liberal mobs. Well, sisters and brothers, be the mob that the divine energy has called you to be. Be the mob that don't allow them to have a moment of peace while they're trying to have dinner outside. Be the mob as they try to steal somebody's rights and somebody's dignity. Steal their comfort away from them. Be the mob of holy outrage. What do we do? We vote. But it's not just voting. We got to organize. We got to run for office if necessary. We got to find those that's going to deliver for the people to run for office. One thing that happens in the church is that we allow our fear to overcome us. Every time somebody gets engaged in something, we always hear coming usually from a board of trustees or somebody, but, 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 but we might lose our 501c3 status. And that's a real argument. But the hell with that argument because somebody's life is on the line. The hell with that argument because some child has been separated from their mother and their father on the border. The devil with that argument because somebody has gone to jail who should not be in jail. Oh, the fact is, is that we got to stand up if we really believe what we claim to believe. Do we really believe in the dignity and the worth of all human beings? Then we need to act like we do. I said this last night as I spoke in Washington, D.C. One thing hit me in the Poor People's Campaign is this, is that all the right-wing religious, I got a few, I ain't going to go there. <laughs> but, but the fact is, is that they walk around clothed in power. Their theology don't mean anything. Because on one breath, they can be the morality police, and then on the other hand, they can ignore all the, mor all the morality out there. Amen. So they're hypocrites at best. But the fact is, is that they understand themselves as a political entity. They understand their people as a political entity. They dare to tell their people where to march, how to march, what to do, and that our God and our theology depends on it. We who are progressive and we who are liberal, we do all the right things. We clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. 
We take care of people. We feel very good about what we do. We do the right things. But we don't see ourselves as the political entity that we should see ourselves as. We get too timid that we might offend somebody. We get too worried that our friends might stop speaking to us if we come out on the wrong side. Well, I got news for you. I don't have any friends that stand on a side that threatens human life. I don't have any friends that stand on the side that is xenophobic. I don't have any friends that are homophobic. I don't have any friends that are heterosexist or, 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 or any other. I basically have to stand where I stand and tell my friends who want to be my my friends, you got to toe the line to be my friend. You toe the line of justice. How do you begin to defeat white supremacy in this country? Is that we got to one, deconstruct it, and two, we got to decide that we stand against it. And we create those places where we stand in solidarity with people of color. And, and, and this, that means that we don't go home when it gets frightening or dangerous. You know what that means, right? We, we go and we participate in a nice demonstration, but if it gets too dangerous, we ain't out there. We got to be out there. We got to stand. Because the very dignity of this country depends on it. The very dignity of sisters and brothers depend on it. The very dignity... Dealing in a predominantly white denomination gets hard for a person like me, Reverend Greg. <laughs> right after that guy on the left, y'all know that I'm going to call that name, right? Y'all know that? Because I can't call that name. I can't call it because I don't want to throw up. So I don't <laughs>
think we have. We got more strength than we think we have. We got more allies than we think we do. We got sisters and brothers all over who are just waiting and moving and doing, and we got to join in on that party and stand up with our sisters and brothers. Because I've learned throughout the years that when I'm doing the right thing, somehow I'll come through. If I'm doing the right thing, somehow a way was made where I didn't even see there, there was a way. They came out with everything in Boston, but I walked out after a year and a half of trial unscathed. We were praying the other day, June, on the steps of the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court had come out with a decision to allow Ohio to purge its voting rolls. So nine of us was praying in front of the Supreme Court and we got locked up. And they deliberately lost us in the system. We were locked up for some 28 hours. Uh, nobody was allowed to make a phone call. So nobody knew where we were. Our lawyers couldn't find us until 3 in the morning because they wouldn't tell the lawyers where we were. So we were there. And, and as I said to somebody, I said it earlier, I was sitting in the jail cell at D.C. Central Sidewalk, as they call it, which is roach-infested and rat-infested. And the beds are a metal slab that holds the drilled net uh, to sleep on. And, and it's never clean. And it's very dirty. And so there's roaches all over the place. And someone like me got to get agitated in a place like that. But I got to tell you, there was a peace that descended on me, a calmness that enwrapped me. I was able to stop stealing roaches, but I was able to sit there <laughs> in peace all night long, in peace. When they came and they put us in leg arms and took us out, I was still in Right? And, 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 and held on to my dignity, which only I felt that the Spirit was saying to me, you can deal with it. You can come through whatever you need to come through. Just don't back up and don't surrender. Don't quit because that's what they want you to do. Don't quit because they're trying to build up a case of fear so that you run away and hide. But don't hide. Because I am with you. The spirit of justice is with us. The spirit of justice will be there for however long it needs to be there. Just continue to walk on and stand up and preach out and teach and organize and change Virgin and change America and change all that needs to be changed until justice is won. I, I remember this song. I love this song. It says, my mother was a soldier in the Y'all heard of one? It says, you held on to the gospel of God. But one day she get old. She can't fight on anymore. So she stood there and fought on me. Well, that's me. And that's you. Because God is not through with you. The divine spirit is not through with you. Just stand and speak truth to God. Don't back down. Don't run away. Don't surrender. Because we 